listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in our show notes, including our toll-free number, where you can leave a message, ideas for future episodes, or tell us about events, campaigns, or victories in your union. Please check out Life on Record. Hey listeners, Labor Know Your Rights will be changing our host in the near future. We have a new RSS feed with a slight change in our name to Labor Know Your Rights V2 for version 2. We did this so we could check out our new host while maintaining our old host on a temporary basis. All our past episodes are available by searching for our new name, on the application you use to get our podcast now. In a couple of months, you will want to be using the new name as we will be losing the current RSS feed. I apologize for the inconvenience, but Phil, our new host, has better tools and should make our podcast better. could have no idea what was about to happen to his bill in the House of Representatives. Hearings on labor management reform legislation were began by a joint subcommittee on education and labor on March 4, 1959, in Washington, D.C., and continued there throughout March and April. The two subcommittees combined for the purpose of these hearings were the Subcommittee on Labor Management Relations and the Subcommittee on Labor Standards. Carl Perkins, a Democrat from Kentucky, was chairman of the former subcommittee, and Phil Lundrum, Democrat from Georgia, of the latter. Each subcommittee's composition was four Democrats and two Republicans, making the joint subcommittee eight Democrats and four Republicans, and all members were from the North. Of the first 22 bills referred to the Joint Subcommittee for hearings, about half were versions of the Kennedy-Urban Bill, and the other half were patterned rather closely after the more strict Administration Bill in the Senate. A bill introduced by George McGovern, Democrat from South Dakota, and one introduced by Edith Green, a Democrat from Oregon, led the list of bills similar to the Kennedy-Urban Bill. Representatives James Roosevelt, Democrat from California, sponsored a bill less strict than any of the above-mentioned proposals. 
but was exceeded in moderation by Representative Ludwig Teller, a Democrat from New York who offered a bill considered the least distasteful to organized labor. The Joint Subcommittee continued its hearings through May and ended on June 10, 1959. The hearings comprise of 2,675 pages of testimony in five volumes. It heard 126 witnesses, 48 representing labor organizations, 57 representing management groups, four from government agencies, congressmen, and witnesses testifying in the public interest. George Meany and Secretary of Labor Mitchell again testified. The Joint Subcommittee began the process of drafting the bill to be presented to the full Committee on Labor. Progress was too slow for the committee, and in mid-June it voted 22 to 10 to bypass the Joint Subcommittee and take up the drafting of the bill in the full Committee of 30 members, which was divided 20 to 10 Democrats and Republicans. However, Chairman Barden could be counted on to push for strict labor reform and four other Southern Democrats on the committee also were considered sympathetic to stringent reform. Using the Kennedy-Urban Bill as a basis for argument, since it had already been approved by the Senate, the committee labor over each section individually with deep disagreement and irritation. Speaking in the House on June 12, 1959, Dent, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, explained that labor opposition was based in fear that coming so close after the McClellan Committee scandal would be overly punitive. The committee accomplished 102 changes from the Candy Irvin Bill. The main one was the dilution of criminal penalties for violations of its provisions. Union lobbying pressures were acute at this time, but Democrats voted with Republicans to keep the bill from being buried in committee, and a 17-13 to 13 vote resulted in a continuation of the committee work on the bill. On July 23, 1959, the committee voted 16-14 to 14 to report the bill to the House. Only five members were actually in favor of the bill as it stood. The remaining members felt it was either too tough or too soft on labor. The bill was named H.R. 8342, also known as the Elliott Bill after its sponsor, Carl Elliott, Democrat from Alabama. Other than the deletion of criminal penalties in the Kennedy-Urban Bill and changes in the no-man's-land provisions of the Senate to provide that an enlarged NLRB would handle these cases, the bill was largely similar to the Kennedy-Urban Bill in its degree of labor reform. The Elliott Bill was regarded as a softer than the Kennedy-Urban Bill and drew opposition from proponents of strict labor reform. House Minority Leader Halleck, a Republican from Indiana, called it a diluted version of a watered-down bill, while the AFL-CIO rejected both it and the Kennedy-Urban Bill promoting instead the bill proposed by Representative Shelley, a Democrat from California. The Teamsters Union lobbyists, led by Sidney Zigri, who remained aloof from the battle until the bills were under consideration in the House Committee, now started all the pressure at their command on the congressman. Halleck and Dirksen persuaded President Eisenhower to exercise his fullest influence 
at this time by the strongest means available, a nationwide television address on the subject of labor reform legislation on August 6, 1959. On the same evening, George Meany, president of the AFL-CIO, spoke over a nationwide radio network on behalf of moderate labor legislation. Robert Kennedy, McClellan Committee Counsel, appeared on the Jack Parr television show on July 23, 1959, and requested viewers to send letters to their congressmen demanding a labor reform bill. A few days later, Kennedy again appeared on TV, this time as a guest on the Meet the Press TV show, which explored with Kennedy the need for labor legislation. Senator Goldwater, appearing on the Martin Agronsky show on August 7, 1959, spoke for strict labor reform. On the same day, Representative Madden, a Democrat from Indiana, an advocate of Kennedy urban-type labor reform, discussed the situation on labor reform on the Dave Garraway Show. Senate Democrat Whip Mansfield, a Democrat from Montana, and Senator Kenneth Keating, Democrat from New York, appeared on Eastern States TV show commenting that the public demand for a good labor reform bill was being felt in the Congress. Halleck and Representative John McCormick, Democrat from Massachusetts, the House Majority Leader stated, opposing views on the labor reform bills on another network show. Senator Kennedy was interviewed on another Eastern States TV show and stated at the time, that a labor reform bill could be achieved in three weeks if the House would accept the Elliott Bill. And on August 10, 1959, Speaker of the House Sam Rayburn made an address on a nationwide radio network advocating adoption of the Elliott Bill. The public was deluged with these and other appeals. The effect of the appeals to the people was astonishing and represented the turning point in the trend of labor reform following Robert Kennedy's TV appearance. Congressmen were flooded with letters demanding labor reform. The volume increased in response to Eisenhower's address. Senator Dirksen received more than 2,000 letters in one day. All congressmen experienced large increases. The pressure for stricter labor reform had a snowballing effect, and when on July 27th, Representative Philip Landrum, Democrat from Georgia, and Robert Griffin, Republican from Michigan, introduced H.R. 8400, known as the Landrum-Griffin Bill, soft reform advocates realized that deep trouble lay ahead. Senator McClellan released the interim report of the Senate Racket Committee covering abuses revealed in the Teamsters Union, the Detroit Institute of Laundering, and the Amalgamated Meat Cutters and Butcher Workmen of North America. The Elliott Bill was referred next to the House Rules Committee, which opened hearings on it on August 4th. The three bills popularly compared to boiled eggs, soft-boiled being the Shelley Bill, medium being the Elliott Bill, and hard-boiled the Landrum-Griffin Bill, viewed the deliberation of the Rules Committee very important. The Rules Committee would decide such matters as the time limits for debate, what circumstances amendments could be made, 
and what order bills could be considered. Tempers were already short, and during the Rules Committee hearings, Landrum called Representative Madden of Indiana, who was considered pro-union, a son of a not completing the thought. The committee heard testimony from Representatives Landrum, Shelley, Dent, Roosevelt, Bailey, a Democrat from West Virginia, Griffin, and Hoffman, a Republican from Michigan, before granting an open rule of six-hour debate and waiving points of order. The most important effect of open rule was to permit floor amendments to the Elliott Bill, the goal of most of the members who voted it out of the House Labor Committee. The House debated the Labor Reforms Bill known as the Elliott, the Shelley, and the London Griffin Bills from August 11th to August 14th. Representative Smith, a Democrat from West Virginia, leader of the Southern Bloc in the House and chairman of the Rules Committee, called up H.R. 338 for consideration. This measure provided that the House should resolve itself into the Committee of the Whole in the State of the Union for consideration of H.R. 8342, the Elliott Bill. The six-hour debate was to be confined to H.R. 8342 and was to be divided evenly between the proponents and opponents of the bills. The chairman of and ranking minority member of the House Committee on Education and Labor will control the debate. It provided that after passage of H.R. 8342, the House Committee on Education and Labor should discharge from further consideration of S. 1555. It would then be in order to strike out all after the enacting clause in S1555 and substitute provisions of H.R. 8342 as passed. The House would then request a conference from the Senate and the Speaker would appoint the conferees for the House. Representative Smith then explained the parliamentary situation on the consideration of the three bills. First, he said the Elliott Bill would be considered. When read for amendments, at the end of the first section, it would be in order to offer the Landrum-Griffin Bill as an amendment and the Shelley Bill. If they voted for the Landrum-Griffin Bill over the Shelley Bill, the Landrum-Griffin Bill would be reported to the House and voted on. If defeated, then the committee bill, the Elliott Bill, would be open to amendments. Everyone was ready to advance the provisions of S-1555 would first be substituted, then stricken, and the House bill as amended, inserted, and conferees appointed. Smith pointed out how unusual this process had been as two subcommittees heard testimony on the bill but did not write it. It was written in full House Labor Committee by members who had not been on the subcommittees which heard the testimony. Then it was voted favorably out of the full committee on the votes of its opponents. Of the five members who had supported it, in reality, not one had heard the testimony before the subcommittee. Smith's resolution on the rules were adopted. The House resolved itself into the Committee of the Whole, and the debate began on the Elliott Bill. The next two days were consumed in lengthy debate over familiar topics, about 30 Speakers favored the Landrum-Griffin Bill, 17 spoke for the Elliott Bill, and only 6 for the Shelley Bill. When the bill was opened for amendment, Adam Clayton Powell, 
Democrat from New York tried to kill the Lundrum Griffin Bill by inserting it in an amendment requiring racial integration in unions, a proposal which immediately caused an uproar in the House. On a teller count of votes on this amendment, it was rejected 215 to 160. Approval would almost certainly have doomed the bill for eventual passage as it would have turned Southerners solidly against the bill. Committee Counsel Robert Kennedy openly broke with Committee Chairman McClellan and endorsed the Elliott Bill as including all the proposals indicated as necessary by the McClellan Committee investigations. Secretary Mitchell broke his long silence by endorsing the Lundrum Griffin Bill. The same day, the Shelley Bill was defeated by a vote of 245 to 132. Landrum offered the Landrum-Griffin bill as an amendment to the committee still under consideration for amendment. Chairman Barton gave an address on the floor ridiculing the Elliott bill and calling for strict labor reform. On August 13, 1959, the debates continued. The Landrum-Griffin proponents proposed an exemption under the Taft-Hartley Act, a stratagem to divide organized labor opposition to the bill. The proposal was rejected by a vote of 183 to 179. Barden proposed at 3.05 p.m. that debate end at 4 p.m. and by a vote of 276 to 26 it was accepted. Representative Dowdy, a Democrat from Texas, proposed an amendment to allow civil suits instead of suits by the Secretary of Labor in rights violation cases and was adopted after Lundrum and Griffin endorsed it by a vote of 186 to 157. Representative Lozer, a Democrat from Tennessee, proposed an amendment to reduce the fine for violence committed in a union hall from $10,000 to $1,000, which was opposed by voice vote. Debate was completed on the Landrum-Griffin Amendment. It passed at this point, then no amendment to it would be possible. If rejected, then consideration of the Elliott Bill would follow. The yeas won the vote 215 to 200, representing approval of the bill. Walter, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, chairman of the Committee of the Whole, stated the bill was now reported back to the House with an amendment. Barden then took a vote on adopting the London Griffin Bill, with a result of 229 in favor to 201. Only four members not voting, including the seriously ill Elliot. A vote of 430 was an all-time House record. 95 Democrats voting in favor, 92 of them Southerners. 16 of the 20 Texans held in line by Rayburn defected to vote for the bill. Speaker Rayburn said it was impossible to get an engrossment that same day, so it would go over to Friday, August 14th. At noon, the House reconvened and H.R. 8342 was read until Barton interrupted to move unanimous consent to dispense with the reading. There was no objection and on Representative Kearns, Democrat from Michigan, motion to recommit the bill, the vote was against 141 to 71. When Dingle, a Democrat from Michigan, demanded the tellers, the vote changed to 280 against 148 in favor. The question then was put on 
passage of H.R. 8342 with the London Griffin Amendment in it. The vote was 303 for and 125 against. And a motion to reconsider that vote was laid on the table. Barden moved to strike out all after enacting clause and insert H.R. 8342. The motion was agreed to without the A's or nays. The London Griffin Bill now transformed again into S-1555 passed on a vote and another motion to reconsider the vote was laid on the table. Barden moved the House to request a conference with the Senate and shortly thereafter the Speaker announced the names of the conferees he appointed. Barden, Democrat from North Carolina, Perkins, Democrat from Kentucky, Landrum, Democrat from Georgia, Thompson, Democrat from New Jersey, Kearns, a Republican from Pennsylvania, Ares, a Republican from Ohio, and Griffin, a Republican from Michigan. After the vote, it was noticed that many House members endorsed by labor organizations and elected with their aid had voted for the London Griffin Bill. As the bills went to conference committee, the difference between the Senate and House bills were a matter of degree than of kind of bill. Senate passed Kennedy-Urban bill limited the control over picketing and secondary boycotts and for keeping all labor management cases under federal law, although it permitted state labor agencies, not courts, to apply the law. The Landrum-Griffin bill provided for jail time for violations of union members' rights, while Kennedy-Urban bill provided for court injunctions. The Landrum-Griffin required all unions to file financial reports. Kennedy-Urban exempted about 70% of the smaller unions. Major contentious points were a. No man's land involving jurisdiction over cases excluded from the NLRB consideration. B. Blackmail and organizational picketing restrictions involving union attempts to organize and force recognition of their organizations through picketing. C. Secondary boycott restrictions involving efforts by unions to put pressure on employers by actions against other employers with whom they deal. Points of difference in less fundamental areas included A. Extent of penalties to be levied. B. Special exemptions to garment and construction industries. C. Union recognition voting rights by members out on strike. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.